As you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, we will be looking at verses 23 through 31. As you're flipping there, I was reminded years ago, I visited Fontana Dam. Fontana is a hydroelectric dam in the western part of North Carolina. And at 480 feet tall and nearly 2,300 feet across, it's actually the largest hydroelectric dam on the east coast. And the massive wall of concrete and steel that holds, uh, holds all of that uh, water back, holds back water about 17 miles long with an average depth of about 135 feet. It's a lot of water behind that concrete wall. And the centerpiece of the whole operation in that wall are three giant turbines that are capable of generating nearly 300 megawatts of electricity per day at their peak in the summer. For perspective, that's enough to power about 120,000 homes. You may be wondering, why am I giving you this picture? Well, in the book of Acts, we come to this passage, you see a church that seems abuzz with activity. The turbines, as it were, were spinning with full force. And as a result of their efforts, the spiritual lights were being turned on in, in every area in which the gospel was proclaimed. People were coming to faith day by day in response to this powerful message going out from them. And on top of that, all of this was happening under the shadow of persecution, both from the religious leaders of the day and the government. Everywhere they went, it seemed that though They were proclaiming faithfully, they were constantly being met with obstacles. And yet the early church church continued to crackle with vibrancy. They continued to be seen with activity. They were full of power. So my question is, how? What spun the turbines? How was the power produced? Well, in a hydroelectric dam, you may be aware that you have this tremendous force, the water, and it seems like it's just ready to be unleashed. But what's interesting is that nothing in the dam happens until the engineers lift the gates. When the gates are lifted, that's when the water begins to flow, that's when the turbines begin to spin, and that's when you see the power produced and you see its effects. So in answering that question of how, what was the power behind the early church, I wanted to ask the question, what was their resource, what was their water, and then importantly, what lifted the gates? If you look down at verse 31 in today's passage, jumping straight to the end, I think we see the answer to both of those questions. What was the resource? It says they were filled with the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, God himself. And what lifted the gates? If you look at the beginning of verse 31, it was prayer. You see, brothers and sisters, I think when we're faced with the mission of God that he's entrusted to his church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to plant churches, to be faithful in evangelism, I think we may be tempted at times to first start seeing things through the lens of what we bring to the table. I think often, if we're honest, we try to fill the lake, as it were, with our own plans, with our own resources. We think if we just sprinkle in a little bit more of our own knowledge and our our own money that eventually things will start to happen, that the electricity will somehow just come on. And don't get me wrong, it's not that any of those things are bad. No, God does bless the church with resources and He does use them to accomplish His sovereign purposes. 
But I was struck in reading in Acts 4 about how the early church didn't seem to rest on any of those things for the accomplishment of God's will. In fact, in Acts 4.13, the commentary on Peter and John and the disciples were that they were uneducated, common people. They had few resources. And yet the power of God was still at work accomplishing His mission. So in answering the question, how, the early disciples knew what I hope to show you in the text today. They knew that the key to experiencing God's power is not by looking to our resources. The key to experiencing God's power in our lives and in the church for the accomplishment of His mission is powerful prayer dependent on Him through the Spirit. That's the key. And so as I think about our own church's desire to grow in evangelism, as I think about our own church's zeal for the nations, and as I think about the church planting initiative that we're committed to over the next year, First Baptist, don't you want God's power to be at work? Don't you want to see His power show up in miraculous ways? Don't you want to see more testimonies like the one we had today of people crossing over from death to life, of people showing the transformation that comes through faith in Jesus and the power of the gospel? Don't you want to see this baptismal filled week in and week out in response to the faithful message of the gospel going forth? If we do, the only way it's going to happen is by the power of the Spirit. It's not going to happen any other way. And that's why I was drawn to today's passage. Because in today's passage, we see an example of a prayer that lifts the gates. And in response to this prayer of God's disciples, he pours out his power in magnificent ways to embolden his church to fulfill and accomplish his mission. Now, in saying this, though, I'm not saying that this is a formula, that if we just rotely go through the things that we see in this text, that God's obliged to give us the exact same result. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that I believe the Spirit has given us this example to show us what this prayerful dependence upon Him looks like. So what I hope to show you in the text today is that if we want to experience God's power as a church and in our lives, we need to start by praying focused on God's attributes, then we need to pray aligned with God's purposes, and then we need to walk boldly in God's power. So what does it mean to pray focused on God's attributes? Why is that the first step in acknowledging and experiencing God's power. Well, it's helpful to dive in to the context of this prayer as we turn our attention now to verse 23. If you look there, it says in verse 23, when they were released. The they there is Peter and John. In Acts 2, you may remember that Peter boldly preaches, and at Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out, and thousands of people are added to the church at Jerusalem. And then in response to that, the church is formed, and there's fellowship and life happening, And then in Acts 3, Peter and John were going to the temple to pray, and there they encounter a man who was lame from birth at at the gate, and he was asking for alms. Peter says he doesn't have money to give him, but what he can give him, he can give him. And what that gift is, is he commands him to rise up and walk, and the man is miraculously healed. And this miracle draws attention to Peter uh, and to the crowd, and they start to wonder, how did this happen? And Peter seizes the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. 
And in that gospel, he proclaims how Jesus is the Savior and how his, his power is at work and it's most clearly seen in the power of the resurrection. And this greatly annoys the religious leaders, especially the Sadducees who didn't like this message of the resurrection. And so Peter and John are arrested. And in response to that arrest, the religious leaders strictly charge them not to proclaim any more this message of God's power through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the pressure of the crowd works in their favor, and the religious leaders let them go, but it's not before, again, strictly charging them and threatening them with more persecution if they were to continue to proclaim this message. And so here in verse 23, Peter and John are coming back to their friends, literally in the text it says their own, and they recount everything that just happened to them. But notice in response to that persecution and the threats of their captors, notice what they don't do. I thought this was so interesting. They didn't immediately run to a whiteboard and start trying to think about a new plan of action. I mean, isn't that what we're tempted to do when we're met with an obstacle in what God's calling us to do? Aren't we tempted to try to immediately go to our strategy and say, okay, how can we adjust the plan to avoid this going forward? They didn't do that. They also didn't recoil in fear. They didn't throw up their hands and say, oh, well, I guess it didn't work out, wasn't meant to be, and go home. No, the first thing they did was they turned to the Lord in prayer. There's a lesson for us even here, isn't there? Oftentimes, the first thing we turn to when we're met with an obstacle in our walks with Christ exposes that which we're really leaning on. I mean, maybe you do have some medical issues. Maybe when you get a headache, for example, or you run into some other medical trial, is not our first instinct to run to our medicine cabinet instead of to the Lord in prayer? Maybe you're running into job issues. Are are you not tempted to pull up Indeed.com and start scrolling through new opportunities instead of turning to the Lord in prayer? It's not that those resources are are not good things God's given us, and it may be that God actually chooses to use those things to accomplish His purposes. But our tendency is exposed to trust in these things instead of the power of the Lord. We see the disciples here that when they were met with an obstacle, their first inclination in response to persecution was to come together and to pray. But notice again another thing that they didn't do. They didn't immediately start asking for things. As a matter of fact, if you look at the text, the first time we see a petition, a request made of the Lord for him to act in any way, is verse 29. So what do they do? The bulk of what they do here at the beginning is actually them focusing on who God is and his holy attributes. Look again at the text. They start by acknowledging right off the bat that God is sovereign reminding themselves that he's completely in control of absolutely everything. Nothing escapes his purview. Nothing's outside of his plan. Then they acknowledge God as the creator. They, they testify to each other through prayer that God has made everything on the earth, including their persecutors. His power extends to every aspect of their lives and every aspect of their situation. They focus on his greatness. 
And then in verse 25, they begin quoting Scripture from Psalm 2. And you may remember in Psalm 2 that in that passage, the psalmist is recounting the futility of the nations and the kings of the earth in their designs to try to stand against the Lord and His anointed. It describes how the wicked of the world may be rebellious in their plots and in their plans, but it's the Lord who establishes His kingdom. It's the Lord who accomplishes His purpose. And in response to their puny efforts and their puny power, God merely laughs. And so what are they doing here? They're focusing their prayer on God's attributes informed by His Word, and the key is, is found in the reason that they're doing it. The reason that they do this in prayer is because they are allowing what God knows to be true about himself to begin shaping their perspective in how they respond. By looking to God's word and by focusing on God's attributes, they're taking off the lenses of self-reliance and they're putting on the lenses of scripture. And they start to evaluate things through his power and his authority and his promises. You know, this aligns with what Jesus taught was the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14 through 17. You may remember Jesus when he describes the work of the Spirit, he calls him the helper and he calls him the Spirit of truth. And then he says that it's the Spirit's job to take the truth of who God is and the truth of what God's accomplishing in the world and that the Spirit takes that information and then glorifies God in us by bringing it to our remembrance. By focusing on his praiseworthy attributes then, the Spirit reminds us of who God is and he testifies in our hearts that yes, these things about who God is and what he's doing are true. And so here the Spirit, his power is on display and his power is already at work because they're just jumping into the flow of what the Spirit was given to do. When they're thinking about and meditating on Scripture, and when they're pondering God's holy attributes, they're putting themselves square in line with what the Spirit was given to his disciples to do to magnify and to glorify the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so when we praise God, we're jumping in the stream. And so if you want some ammo by way of application... I would encourage you when we pray, do like the disciples did. Start with Scripture. Scripture is what God's given us to inform us about who He is and what He's doing in the world, is it not? That's where we see most plainly God's holy attributes. And so if you want to be equipped in prayer to step out in God's power, pray Scripture. And then when we do this, because of the Spirit's working in us through that, we experience peace. God helps us to trust in him more because, again, he reframes through that process our perspective. We see this played out even in the text here in verses 27 and 28. When they're recounting what's going on in their lives in line with what they saw in Psalm 2, they're essentially saying, Lord, just like people throughout time have stood against your purposes and you still prevail, today is no different. As a matter of fact, Lord, here's the irony of just how powerful you are. Even when the Jews and the Gentiles conspired to, to kill Jesus, your holy servant, and, and when they thought they had the final victory in their apparent quote-unquote success, here's what's amazing. You had actually predestined all of that to happen for the accomplishment of your great victory because it was through Jesus' death on the cross and then his resurrection that sin was atoned for. And so they're looking at the situation and they're saying, Lord, you're completely in control. Thank you for the reminder from your word that you are over everything. 
And as a result of that, they have peace. They have peace and confidence in what God is doing. No matter our situation or request, we can be instructed here from their example that if we want to step into the Spirit's power, to experience His power, it starts by fixing our eyes on God and who He is and being informed by His Word of what He's doing in the world. And then that is what informs as well what we start to ask Him for. And what they start to ask for are petitions that are, secondly, aligned with God's purpose. Look again at the text in verses 29 through 30. Here we see three requests. Two of them are explicit, and then one of them is implicit. The first two explicit requests that they make of God based off of His attributes and then based off of what He's doing in the world is they ask God to look upon their threats And then they ask for boldness to speak the word. And then another implied request is found in the ask that while they're doing these things, that God would stretch out his hand in power. So let's take a look at each of these requests and see what insights we can glean from them. First request, look upon their threats. Literally in the text here, it has the thrust of basically asking God, to fix his attention on this thing that's happening over here. And remember, the themes of Psalm 2 are still in their mind, and they know that God's wrath should be poured out on the rebellious that stand against his plans. And so informed by that, they're basically saying, hey, God, here's some rebellious people over here. You might want to pay attention to that. That's the thrust of their request. And when I was looking at that, I I thought, "That's, that's actually pretty bold, isn't it? I mean, they had just finished saying that God was sovereign over everything. He knows everything. Nothing catches him by surprise. So it's, it's pretty bold then to kind of come before him and say, God, you need to look over here. Look at what these people are doing against your will. And yet, they come before him confidently because I think they know that God is honored when we make bold requests of him. It reminds me of another bold prayer in the, Exodus 32, you may remember the scene. Moses is on the mountain receiving God's law. He comes down to find that the people had made for themselves a golden calf to worship. And in response to that, God says that he wants to basically consume his people in anger. And he says, Moses, well, I'm basically just going to start over. I'm going to consume these people, so get out of my way for that. And in you, I'm going to make a new nation. Do you remember how Moses responds? He prays to intercede for the people, but the content of his prayer was pretty bold. He essentially says, God, look, if you do that, that doesn't seem to square with what you promised you would do for your people. He says, if you consume them in your wrath, it's going to mar the image of your glory in the world because if you do that, the Egyptians are going to look at you and they're going to say, you brought these people out just to destroy them? And then, God, what about all those covenant promises you made that you were going to be with your people, you were going to protect them, you were going to bring them into the promised land? I mean, I trust you, but it doesn't seem like it adds up. Here's what's so fascinating. God does not rebuke Moses in that prayer for boldly asking him aligned with what he had manifested to them and told them previously. Instead, Moses finds God relenting from his wrath and then blessing his people again with his presence. The disciples and Moses know that God is honored when we ask him boldly for things because it implies that we actually believe that he is there, that he cares, and that he's able to do something about it. 
And I think sometimes, too, we're nervous about this type of boldness because I think, and this is a valid concern, I think sometimes we feel like it doesn't square with God's sovereignty either. Sometimes I think we don't ask because we're, we, we don't want to make it look like we're not trusting him as he's unfolding his plan. But here's what the disciples and here's what Moses know and that I hope is encouraging to you. God is sovereign. But as he unfolds his plan for accomplishing his purposes, miraculously he is also ordained to use the prayers of his people to pour out his power to accomplish his purposes. And so the disciples here pray in the tension of humility and boldness, humility knowing that, yes, God is great and we're creatures and we don't know everything, but in boldness knowing that God is their heavenly Father and that he's told them what he's doing in the world. And so they pray in light of his attributes and his plans and they boldly come before his throne. And so in addition to asking him to pay attention to what's going on, the next request is they ask him for boldness to, to continue to proclaim his word. Again, it's worth noting what they don't ask for here. Isn't it interesting that in the face of persecution, they don't ask for the persecution to end? Isn't it interesting that they don't ask for the destruction of their persecutors? I think this is because, again, they're still informed by God's word and what his purposes are, and so they know that they need to pray what's in line with what God's doing, with what his central activity is. You see, in Psalm 2, even in that great psalm talking about the wrath of God and his power poured out against those who would be rebellious to him, even in that psalm, there's a window of opportunity where it says, O rulers, kiss the son lest he be angry. The disciples were also very much aware of Jesus' last words to them before he ascended, both in the Great Commission that as he goes, the, the next thing the disciples need to be doing is proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth because that's how Jesus was going to build his kingdom. And I, I'm sure they were reminded of what Jesus promised them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, not only do you have this mission, but I'm going to give you the power to accomplish it through the Spirit. And so informed by all of these truths from God's word, the petition they ask is, God, help us to keep aligning ourselves with the central work that you're accomplishing in the world. And we believe that as you hear that request, that you will give us that promise of the Holy Spirit to be faithful in the mission that you've given to us. And undergirding all of that is a rock-solid confidence in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You see, they know that God's attributes, all those things they were celebrating earlier, is most clearly on display through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the truth that while we are all rebellious to God and his purposes, while we all, like sheep, have gone astray, while we all have turned aside from God and while we all have turned to ourselves in rebellion, that God through his son, Jesus Christ, provided a way of escape from the wrath that's due to us because of our sin. He sent his son, Jesus, into the world to live a perfect life and then to die a sin-atoning death on the cross in our place, satisfying the wrath of God and then also pouring out the love of God. And then in his resurrection power, we see that his offering to God was complete, that our sin debt had been completely paid for, and that through simple faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we then get grafted into the family of God and then can experience His power as we walk with Him in our lives. The disciples knew that the central work that God was doing in the world was the advance of this gospel. 
And so they ask, God, grant us boldness to continue to align with your mission. Grant us boldness, not for the mere sake of boldness, but so that your word, this powerful word, would continue to go forth. And to facilitate that work, we come to the third request. It's more of an implicit request because it says, while we're doing these things, please continue to stretch out your hand. And the request here is that signs and wonders and healings would continue as a display of God's power as they go about the task. It's important here to note that they weren't asking for the supernatural gifts in order to grow their platform. As a matter of fact, the gifts themselves are not even their focus. If you look at the end of the verse, what's the focus? It's that Jesus' name would be magnified. He's the focus. And so why are they asking, though, for these gifts then? Why are they asking that God would continue to to give them these gifts and, and to pour out a spirit in these particular ways? Well, I think it points to the reality that we see in Jesus' ministry and that we saw in the Old Testament prophets' ministry that the signs and wonders that accompanied the work of the ministry were given by God as a way to authenticate the message and the messenger to show that God was there, that he was actually at work and that he was behind what they were doing. We see this even in Acts 3, again, when I mentioned earlier about the, the healing of the lame beggar. The point wasn't that Peter had this miraculous ability to heal. That wasn't the point. When, when the attention came to the healing, Peter used it and seized it as an opportunity to deflect praise to God and then to proclaim the, jo- the gospel and pointed to the fact that it was by Jesus' power that this man was healed. And so what they're really asking for here is not necessarily for the signs to get, to get the front stage here. What they're asking for is for God to continue to pour out his power in ways that when you see it happen, you know it's surely him doing it. And why would they ask for this? It's because they know that when God shows up in power in this way, who gets the glory for it? Is it them? No. When God shows up in power to accomplish these things in a way that only he can, he gets the glory for it. What the disciples were wanting even expecting, is that toward the end of him getting more glory, that as they and the watching world saw him show up, that his power would be what's on display. They knew that even in the proclamation of the gospel, it's God's power alone through the Holy Spirit that can reach in and take out the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. They know that it's God's power alone that opens up the doors for the gospel to go forth. They know that it's God's power alone that makes a way for them. And so what are they asking for? They're saying, God, show us more of your power. Let us see you at work. And when he does this, their confidence in him grows because they get a front row seat to experiencing the power of God. This reminds me of a story about D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was a um, gospel preacher, famous, um, went to England for a while to learn from English preachers one time on a sabbatical. And his goal on going on that sabbatical was really just to sit back and learn. He he wasn't wanting to really serve because he wanted just to, to rest and to learn and to grow. And so he, he goes to England, but he visits one town, and he was invited by a pastor in that town to preach when they heard that he was there. 
And he was sort of reluctant in it, but the pastor was pretty persistent. And so D.L. Moody said, fine, I'll do it. And he agrees to preach in the morning service and in the evening service. And and the pastor was super excited about it. And so D.L. Moody, he gets up there in the pulpit and he starts to preach in the Sunday morning service. And to everyone's surprise, it went pretty badly. There was no response in the people at all. It went so badly, in fact, that D.L. Moody, when he was done preaching, he gave a response to the gospel. No one stood up. It didn't seem like anything was happening. And then as he left, he even commented to the pastor, you know, I don't even think I should come back this afternoon. But he had agreed. And so he goes home. He comes back. And then he steps into the pulpit again in the evening, and he starts to preach. But what was so amazing was in the second time in the evening, the feel of the room was completely different. As a matter of fact, when he finished preaching, he gave the call for the gospel at the end and lots of people stood up in the room. So D.L. Moody, fresh with that experience in the morning, he, he starts to wonder, did I leave something out? I must have left something out about the gospel. So he actually tells all the people who stood up to sit back down and then he re-preaches the gospel to them even more boldly and he says, okay, now if you really want to follow Christ, stand up and receive him. And then even more people stood up. So incredulous and disbelieving, again, he says, okay, you know what? Sit back down. If you really want to come to faith in Christ, I want you to come to this room afterward, talk with the pastor, and then we will work with you uh, and see what the next steps are. So D.L. Moody exits the pulpit. The people go into this other room. And to his surprise, he walks in, and even more people are in this side room waiting to hear the gospel again. So we get, this is no joke. When I, I looked this story up, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. But he actually tells them again the gospel. And then he says, okay, you know what? I don't believe this. If you really want to follow Christ, if you really want to join this church, I want you to go home. And then I want you to come back tomorrow to a prayer meeting. And there I want you to talk with the pastor about learning more about what it means to follow Christ. And so he sent them home. Next morning he gets in the boat to go to Ireland, and he leaves. When he gets to Ireland, he finds a telegram that was written to him. And in that telegram, it's from the pastor of that church he was just in telling him, D.L. Moody, you need to come back. Something amazing is happening. When you left, more people came to the prayer meeting the next night than had even responded the two nights prior. So D.L. Moody goes back, and 400 people from that village come to faith in Christ and join the church. So D.L. Moody is curious about how on earth this could possibly happen. And he starts to investigate. And then he finds out the difference between the Sunday morning gathering when there was no response and the Sunday evening gathering that sparked that town's revival. That morning, there was a member of the church who had a sister who was ailing and her sister was in the hospital. That member, after the morning service, came to the hospital to share with her sister, Marion Adler is her name, and her sister was bedridden. She had been for a while, and she was unable to go to church. She hears that D.L. Moody had come into town and that he proclaimed the gospel, and then the sister was like, but, you know, nothing really happened. And then the sister, the bedridden one, asked, wait a minute, you said D.L. Moody? You see, what, what the people didn't know is that this bedridden woman had been praying for years after she herself had heard about D.L. Moody, that he would come specifically to their town and that he would be the one that would spark a revival. It was one of her personal prayer requests. 
And so when she heard about that in the morning, she immediately told her sister, take my food away from me. I'm going to pray and I'm going to fast and I'm going to ask that the Lord pours out his spirit through the preaching of D.L. Moody and that God would get the glory through many coming to faith in him. The difference between the Sunday morning service and the revival that was started in that town were the prayers of one bedridden woman who believed in the power of God and asked him to pour it out. Doesn't this encourage us, brothers and sisters, that God can use any of our prayers to accomplish his mission? Do we believe that God will use our prayers in the same way that he used the prayers of Marion Adler? And I'm sure there's many of us in this room that could testify to times when we've prayed and God has poured out his power. And again, the focus is not that we can delight in the power being poured out, but what does that do for us as believers in him? Doesn't it give us confidence to know that he really is at work? And so the disciples pray for that power. They display a trust that God will pour out his power to accomplish his mission. And the end is that he would get the glory and that many would trust in Christ. So the disciples prayed for focus on God's attributes, and then they pray aligned with God's purposes, asking to continue, to continue boldly in proclaiming the gospel. And they ask him to pour out his power. And what was the result? Well, we see it in verse 31. Thirdly, they walked boldly in God's power. Look again at the text. It says that when they prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken. This was a sign of God's presence there among them in answering the prayer. And the first result of that spirit presence with them is that they themselves were filled with the spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that they didn't have the spirit before. There are some that would say that you need this special manifestation of the Spirit to actually be found in God. No, Scripture makes plain elsewhere, like in Acts 2.38 and even in John chapter 3, that the Spirit comes to all believers in Jesus Christ upon repentance and faith in Him. It's a gift given by God. So it's not that they didn't have the Spirit before, but what they are given is a special filling, a special manifestation of the Spirit's power and grace needed to actually do the task that God has for them to walk in. And what's the result of that spirit filling? Well, we see the second result is that they were able to continue to speak the word with all boldness. Now, this is a direct answer to the request that they had asked God in verse 29. And honestly, we could stop right here and praise God for just answering the request for boldness. But as I was thinking about this verse and in their response and what happened afterwards, I realized that there was another aspect, another component to experiencing God's power that's at play here besides just prayer. And it has to do with, and it points to the dynamic nature of our walk with Christ in partnership in the Spirit. So where, where, where am I getting this? Well, notice, when did the power actually come for them in response to this prayer? In other words, how did they practically know that the Spirit had, in fact, given them the answer to this request? Well, they would have actually known the boldness of God, and they would have actually known the Spirit's power only the next time when they were presented with an opportunity to walk in faith and to proclaim Him. That's when they would have known and actually experienced what it meant to walk 
in God's power. Again, you may remember in John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And then he says, I will ask the Father and he'll give you a helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. In that text, Jesus is talking about the ministry of the Spirit, and he's, and he's not saying that through obedience we earn God's favor or His standing, because those, again, are gifts that come from Him through repentance and faith. But I do think Jesus is establishing, as part of the ministry of the Spirit, a relationship between the connection of our affections with Christ and then our walk in obedience with Him. You see, who is it that gives us the affection for Jesus in the first place? Isn't it the Holy Spirit who takes the truth of the gospel and gives us the affection of Christ in our hearts? It's the Spirit who peels back the blinders on our eyes and helps us to see Jesus for who He is, that He really is the wonderful Savior that God promised, that He really is as good as He says He is, that He really is our loving and perfect King who's worthy to be followed that he really does have an easy burden and that following and trusting in him really is worth it. And so here's what happens whenever we trust God in the Spirit and walk in obedience. The Spirit is the one who gives us affection and then the Spirit is the one who empowers us to obey. And then here's the key, as we obey more in Jesus, walking with him, carrying out his mission, serving the way he served, thinking the way he thought, loving the way that he loved, the Spirit works all those things in us, and then what happens to us as a result? We get more joy, and we get a greater experience of who Jesus is in our lives, too. So you could say it this way, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, But I think the truth here is that the converse is also true. The more we keep his commandments, the greater our experience of his love and his mercy and his grace becomes in our lives. And then that is what gives us the confidence to continue to take steps of faith in boldness to following him. That's what's happening with the disciples here, isn't it? They pray for boldness to proclaim Jesus. But I want to ask you the question at the root, what is this boldness? What is the actual gift that the Spirit gave them? It is boldness, yes, but at the core, is the gift not more affection for Jesus such that when the next opportunity comes to proclaim His name, they're filled with so much love and so much, so much joy in His person and in His work and what He's doing that they're able to say no to their fears and they're able to say yes to Him? Brothers and sisters, that's what the Spirit does when we pray and ask for it. He fills us with the knowledge of God, yes. His attributes inform how we pray. We're filled with then petitions that that align with His purposes, but the experience of His power comes when we walk in obedience to what He's doing in the world. And it's through that obedience that powerfully the Spirit actually works in us a greater and deeper joy in Him, and then we get a front row seat to all that He's doing in the world. So if we want to experience God's power in our lives, we need to pray. But then we also need to walk boldly in the power that He supplies through the Spirit because it's actually through the walking with God that we experience and know Him more fully. And this is important for us too because we're also reminded from God's Word that we can actually quench the Spirit and we can quench the experience of this power in our lives. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Paul outright says, do not quench the Spirit. 
You may remember from Ephesians 4, he also says that we can grieve the Spirit. He's pointing to the reality that when we don't align our lives with the will of God, when we don't go to Him in dependence, when we lean on our own understanding instead of leaning on Him, when we seek our own way instead of His way, when we continue in our rebellion through sin, it actually is like a stopper that shuts the gates of our experience of His power in our lives. And so just by way of application even right here, are you walking in a pattern of obedience this morning that would hinder you from experiencing God's power in your life? Ask the Spirit to give you this greater affection for Jesus that enables you to say no to that lesser joy so that you can walk in the greater joy of knowing and serving Christ. The disciples' dependence on God we see from this text started with prayer, but it bled over into action. It was in response to their prayers that the Spirit emboldened them and that they were able to walk then boldly in God's power for the accomplishment of His mission and to the praise of His glory. So, brothers and sisters, if we want to experience the power of God in our lives, we too need to pray focused on God's attributes. We need to allow His attributes and the truth from His Word to saturate our minds in such a way that it reframes our perspective, that we see everything in our lives and everything going on in the world through the lens of what He's doing. And then from that information, from that knowledge of who God is and what He's doing, we then need to pray aligned with those purposes, asking God to give us the strength to glorify Him through a trial that may come, through an obstacle that may come, whatever it is. We pray aligned with His purposes, knowing that when we do so, God pours out His Spirit, and He enables us to walk boldly in God's power in obedience to Him. In closing, by way of application, we've had application throughout, but I wanted to leave you with just a few things here. First and foremost, if you're outside of Christ this morning, if you walked into this room and you do not know this Savior that I've been talking about from His Word, the first prayer that you should pray should be a prayer of repentance and faith. Before you can walk in all of these wonderful blessings, before you can walk aligned with the Spirit's power, before you can be involved in accomplishing what God's doing in the world, you at first need to align your heart with God Himself through acknowledging that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. And it's through repentance, turning away from your sin and turning to Him in faith that God promises any who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So what's holding you back? Turn to Him by faith today. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to do anything. Just in the quietness and the stillness of your heart right now, pray. Ask God to do what only He can do, to sovereignly pour out His Spirit, to change you from the inside out. It's only then that you'll know and experience God's power. But then secondly, for us as a church, brothers and sisters, Even as I was thinking about this application, it seems so simple, but it's so difficult for us, isn't it? And here it is. We need to pray. Are we, First Baptist Church, marked as a people of prayer? Can we point to God's activity in direct response to our prayer to know that He's the one at work in everything that we're hoping to do? As I think about the church plant, as I think about 
any activity that would align with God, as I think about the mission, as I think about the evangelism training we're happening, having on Wednesday, and, and, and all of those things are good, I just wonder if sometimes what's missing is a, is a dependence upon God in prayer. So brothers and sisters, we need to pray. If we want to experience God's power, we need to go to the lake, to the source of the power. And we need to ask him to lift the gates so that the water will begin to flow. So what big God-sized prayer requests can you go, boldly go to him with today? I know for me personally with the church plan, I'm praying for a lot of things. Do I know where it's going to be yet? No, I need God to show us that. And I pray that he does so in a way that only he gets the glory. Do I know who's going to be part of the core team yet? No. But I pray that the Spirit would place it on anybody's hearts who would come with the core team that, that he would be the one that would bring them up and that they would be sensing that by the Spirit's calling and leading in their lives. What's it for you? Maybe it's a lost coworker or relative that you've been praying for for a long time. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep praying aligned with God's Word and aligned with His mission. I'm just willing to bet if we pray in that level of boldness, completely dependent on him, he will delight to show himself in power. And when he does, he'll get the glory. Close with me in prayer. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit who takes the truths of your word and then impresses it into our hearts. I pray, Holy Spirit, that in these even next few moments that you would lead us to a greater dependency upon you. Lord, I know that each one in this room, myself included, we, we want to experience your power, but if we're, if we're honest with you, we, we don't lean into you in prayer as much as we should. So we confess that to you, Lord. I pray that today would be like a line in the sand for all of us, that today we would endeavor to come to you more dependently in prayer. And I pray, Lord, that as we do so, you'd be pleased to show your power in wonderful ways. Not so that we can get the glory, Lord. No, not so that people can point to First Baptist Church and say, oh, wow, look how good they are. But so that people can point to church, First Baptist Church and say, look how good their God is. So I pray that you would manifest yourself to us, Lord. Show us your power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.